Well, I am so glad that you are here with us today. I'm also thankful for those who are watching online and on TV, and I'm also thankful for those who are at our multi-site campuses all over the state of New Mexico and in Belize. We're thankful for you, too, to be a part of the Sagebrush family. You know, our mission statement around here is to know Christ and to make Christ known. And last week, I shared with you just briefly about a capital campaign. It's a one-year capital campaign called M1 where we are trying to attempt to uh, raise money and support to start 50 churches all around the world. And what's so neat and unique about this particular capital campaign is that every dime we raise, not a single dime stays here in, in our campuses in, in, in the United States. It all is going to be go out to all of these different locations. And when COVID is finally over, where I can know for certain that I can bring you back from the country we send you to, you'll have the opportunity, if you'd like to, to go on a mission trip and see how God used the dollars that you provided to make an impact over in these different countries. So there's 24 different countries, over 50 different projects. Last week, we gave you this M1 Capital Campaign card. If you weren't here last week, you didn't get one, make sure you pick one up at the Information Center before you go so you have something to pray about in your time alone with the Lord. If you're watching me at home or online, make sure that you download this on the M1 site. It's m1.sagebrush.church. It's right there on our website as well, and you can download a commitment card. Card also, I got an, an interesting phone call this past week. Uh, actually, I made the phone call. I got a letter this past week. In the letter, this man uh, said that his wife had passed away the year before and that uh, he was watching the service. He had made a vow to his wife that he would watch every sagebrush service from that point forward or he would come to church. When he can't come to church, he watches it online. So he's at home. He's watching it online. It's late Saturday night. And he hears about the M1 Capital Campaign. And he looks at a picture on the mantle of his wife, and he said, I knew if she was still with me, she would have said, let's give our very best to this campaign. So he sends me this letter, and inside there's a letter and there's a check. The check is for $100,000. He said, I wanted to fund one of the missions, and I want you to go with me on a trip to go see it. And I said, you go give $100,000, I will get on a plane, and we will go together, and we will go see it. So some of you have been blessed a lot. And you're like, you know, I think we can do a whole project. What you want to do is you want to email us. Email Bob Church or email the main church office. And we can talk to you about you adopting a particular spot. If God's blessed you in that way and you can do it, even if you can just give a little bit, at some point in time, you're going to get the opportunity to go on a mission trip and actually see it. So let me introduce you to a few of the pastors and a few of the projects that we're trying to help. Take a look at this. With your help this year, we're going to plant and provide facilities to 50 plus churches globally. We've broken down these projects across 24 countries into three different parts of the world, Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Check out what some of our partners in Africa have to say about these new projects. My name is Kifo, I'm pastor here. As you know, the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations. So our biggest project is to come here in this community, winning people for Christ, make disciples, and build a church. Have a place to call church will be a blessing for this community. And the excitement people will have will allow them to impact the other village and win more souls for Christ. Hello and greetings. My name is Pastor Dominic Eklu. I'm pastor here in Togo in Africa. 
I want you to know that this project will not only change the course of woman history for the people here, it's going to redefine the community because they will have a place they, they, they can worship in, a place they can, they can find and experience the really love of God. Alone, I can do that, but together, yes, we can. Kabore Ferdina. My name is Ferdinand Kabore. I lead a cell group in order to lead people to the Lord. But with the prayers and the songs, with the music, the drums, it upsets a lot of people, the noise. And so that's why we ask all those that can come and help us to help us get a building, a temple. Every person that is available can really help us out. They can help us spiritually, materially, financially, and socially. Safu Adu, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church at Forokrom, and we have come to the next village called Finyaso to start a church. So God has provided us this land, and we are praying that you will help us to get a funds to build this church for the people here. And we are sure that the, those who have come in, when they get the church, we will train them so that they can go to the next villages to proclaim the gospel there. We thank you so much for helping us here in Ghana. These are just a few of our projects throughout Africa, and we have many more. If you'd like to check those out, you can visit m1.sagebrush.church or the Sagebrush app. With our help, these churches will make it possible to help surrounding villages and even send out missionaries and pastors to new places that haven't been reached yet. God is providing the opportunity to share his word, his gift, and his light across Africa. Are you ready to be a part of this story that's about to be written? You can visit m1.sagebrush.church or check out the free Sagebrush app today to find out more about the M1 Capital Campaign and donate today. This is very exciting. And, and did you love the rawness of the video when you heard the chicken? I mean, come on, that was a good time right there. And then the fly that just wouldn't let that poor pastor go. He just kept buzzing by the camera over and over again. Last week, we passed out these M1 commitment cards. If you weren't here or you didn't get one, make sure you get one at the information center on all of our campuses. If you're home and watching this, all you got to do is go to that m1.sagebrush.church site, and you can download your commitment card as well, and you can be a part of changing another piece of the world with the gospel message of Jesus. Jesus Christ. Friends, for those who have been given much, and that's every single one of us, much is required. We need to be faithful. And, and even the little bit that we give, God can take it, he can break it, and he can multiply it. I think about that little boy who comes to, to Jesus that day when he needs to feed all those people. And he, and he hands him his little sack lunch of five, five little fish and a couple of loaves of bread. And Jesus takes it. And he breaks it, and he blesses it, and he multiplies it, and it feeds 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And God wants to do whatever you can offer to him. And he'll take it, he'll break it, he'll bless it, and he will multiply it to make it an impact. And then one day when all this coronavirus stuff is finally over and we can just travel freely, you can go to these different places and you can see how God used your faithfulness to impact the lives of other people. So I'm pretty excited about it. The commitment cards will be happening the first weekend of February online and at home. It'll be the second weekend of February. We'll take those cards all year round, but let's raise a significant amount of money and let's fund these projects uh, to lead 
leave this world in better shape than the way we found it. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the message today. Dear Heavenly Father, we're excited. We're excited to even get to attempt something like this. First time in the history of our church, Lord, that we've finally been able to do something like this because you have blessed us so much financially. And to those who have been given much, much is required. And we want to be found faithful on that day. When we stand before your presence, we want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, around here, we don't want to be about building our kingdom of mud that's here today and gone tomorrow. We want to be about building up the kingdom of God that endures forever. And we look at these videos and we see these pastors and we, we see the people who have gathered together for the church in these different areas. Lord, it just excites us that we could be a part of that. It excites us to see where you're already at work. And Lord, if they had the resources, how many more people could they reach? How many more people could be saved? So Lord, help us to be faithful to what you've entrusted to us. Help us, Lord, to do what you've called us to do. May your Holy Spirit speak to us in such a way that it would be undeniable about what you would have us to be about. And Lord, I pray that you would use us in a way we've never been used before. Thank you for the privilege to serve you in this manner and to give in this way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one day, Abraham Lincoln was in a carriage, and he was riding along with the colonel from Kentucky. And the colonel from Kentucky offered President Lincoln a drink of whiskey. And the president said, no, thank you. I don't drink. Well, they continued on the little carriage ride a few more feet down the way. And the colonel pulled out a cigar and began to light the cigar and he offered Abraham Lincoln a cigar as well. And Abraham Lincoln once again said, no, thank you, I don't smoke. Well, they continued down the ride for a few more hundred yards. And then Abraham Lincoln broke the silence. He said, can I tell you a story, Colonel? He said, by all means, Mr. President. He said, when I was a young boy about the age of nine years old, my mom was severely ill. And the doctors had already come to her, and they had told her that she didn't have much longer to live. So she summoned me to her bedside, and she said her goodbyes to me. And she said, Abe, I want you to be a good boy, and I want you to grow up to be a good man. And I don't want you to have anything to do with liquor or alcohol. I don't want you to have anything to do with tobacco. Now, Abraham, you promise me you won't have anything to do with those things. Abraham Lincoln said, he said, made that promise to his mom at the age of nine. Then he turned to the colonel and said, up to this very moment in time, I have kept that promise every moment of every day. He said, sir, would you have me break that promise now? The colonel said, no, sir. I think that is a wonderful promise that you made to your mom. I would have given $1,000 if somebody would have asked me to make the same promise. I would be a better man today if I'd have made that promise to my mom. Something powerful, isn't there, about a promise, isn't it? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I will do what I said that I would do. I will come through no matter what. If I said it, then I'll follow through with it. I will keep my vow. I will keep my word. Now, why is God so honored when we do that? It's because our God is a promise-keeping God. I mean, it's rare for you to be able to read a single page of Scripture, and God's not making a promise to someone. I, I think about the promise that God made to Noah. He said, Noah, I will never, no, never flood the earth ever again. And just as a symbol of the promise that I'm giving to you, there's going to be a rainbow that's going to be placed in the sky. And God has kept his word. God has kept his promise. 
I think about Abraham. God comes to Abraham and says, if you'll follow me, I will make you the father of a great nation. You just obey me and do what I ask you to do. And Abraham said, okay, sign me up. I will follow you no matter where you lead me. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And God said, good. And a symbol of our promise is that you will be circumcised. Abraham said, really? Circumcision? Come on, God. Noah got the rainbow. I don't think, do we really want to go? No, I'm just kidding. It's a joke. Wake up, people. All right, it's funny. Sometimes God's promises are positive, and sometimes God's promises are disciplinary, aren't they? God promised Adam and Eve, if you eat from the forbidden fruit, that you will never enter the Garden of Eden ever again. And guess what? They never did. God promised Moses because he lost his temper. Once again, God said, you know, that's it. You won't even set foot on the promised land. You won't even put a pinky toe there. And sure enough, Moses never set a pinky toe in the promised land. God, God promised the children of Israel that they would one day inherit the promised land. And sure enough, God kept his word, didn't he? Through the prophets of the Old Testament, God promised that one day there would be a Messiah that would come, that would save us from our sins. God fulfilled his promise in Jesus. Jesus came, walked this earth, lived a perfect, sinless life. All over 300 prophecies, all fulfilled by Jesus. God keeps his word. Jesus promised that he would die for us, for the sins that we've committed against a holy God. And sure enough, Jesus kept his promise, didn't he? Jesus also promised that he'd rise again from the dead. And sure enough, he did. And Jesus promised that anyone who trusts in him, clings to him, relies upon him, shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. God is faithful to his promises. Jesus said, I'm going away. And where I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Right now, he promised he's preparing a place for us. And one day we will be with him and we will leave this world of sickness and shame and death and disease finally behind. Because our God is a promise-keeping God. We've been reading this passage of scripture in the book of Malachi. And last week we found out that God was upset with the people. And the reason he was upset with the people was because they weren't bringing their best to the Lord, right? If you don't know much about the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, if you want to be forgiven of your sin, you brought a lamb every year. Supposed to be the best lamb that you had of your flock. A perfect lamb. A blemishless lamb. And you were to lay that as a sacrifice to the Lord. And the priest would take the lamb and he would cut the, the lamb and kill the lamb. And he would pour the blood of the lamb out. And he would put the lamb on the altar of God. And, and the aroma of the burning meat was a, an aroma that was pleasing to God. And it symbolized that your sins were forgiven for one year. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Someone has to pay the price for your sins. So in the Old Testament, it was a lamb, and it was supposed to be the very best lamb that you had. But last week, we found out that the people weren't bringing their best lamb, were they? They were bringing their crippled lambs. They were bringing their diseased lamb. They were bringing their blind lamb. They weren't bringing their very best to the Lord. And God was offended because they weren't giving their very best. Look at what the Bible says here, Malachi chapter 2, verse 3. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. Seems a little extreme, doesn't it? But you can hear the anger, and you can hear the brokenheartedness of God, can't you? And so what did we say last week? We said, listen, we, we need to give our best. 
And why should we give our best? Because God gave his very best to us. God gave the ultimate lamb of God who died for the, and sacrificed himself for the sins of all mankind, for your sins and for my sins. And so we're not going to come here, we're not going to live our life and just say, you know, this is the best I can do, this is the least I can do. We're going to give our very best, 24 hours a day, seven days a week to him. Well, now we open up Malachi chapter 2. And God has another issue when it comes to the people of Israel during this time. This is what he says. He says, another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings. You ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you've broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Because our God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God, he was offended. Because the people in this time period were not taking their marriage vows seriously. And they were divorcing each other over the dumbest reasons, over the stupidest things. And God looked at that and said, you're treating marriage without any kind of dignity, without any kind of respect. It's as if you don't understand what you've entered into when you asked that person to marry you, when you walked down that aisle and you made those vows. A marriage ceremony is the coming together of two people, not just physically, but it's the coming together of two people spiritually. And the faithfulness that's in that marriage relationship is an evidence, an example to a lost and unbelieving world about the faithfulness of God. I was reading a book by Bob Russell, and this is what he said. He said, a Christian marriage is supposed to be a visual aid to the world. This is how God loves us. Even though we may become apathetic, God draws closer. Even though we're not perfect, God is still committed to us. Even though we're not lovable, God is still faithful to us. And the world ought to be able to look at a Christian marriage and say, they love each other as God loves them. With an in spite of kind of love. In spite of their inconsistency, in spite of the moments they drive each other crazy, they can count on each other. That is what I want for my home. I respect their commitment. God says, listen, when two Christian people come together and they get married in holy matrimony and God joins the two of them together, it's a symbolic act of the faithfulness of God that these two people are going to face life together no matter what might come their way. Through hell and high water, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, till death do us part. I'm committed to you no matter what, even in sickness and in health. Bob Russell went on to say in his book that he had a friend of his by the name of Russ. Russ and his wife have been married for over 40 years. And uh, Russ has, has, has aged very well, and his, his wife has not aged as well. And, and part of the reason she hasn't aged as well is because she has Alzheimer's disease. And so Russ, he, he, he takes care of his wife. He said, Bob said, every time I see Russ with his wife, he's just taking care of her. He's guiding her. He's leading her. He's comforting her. He's talking to her. He's, he's just being so patient with her because she's a little bit slower than she used to be. He's just always tending to her care. Russ had a conversation with Bob, and, and he said, the other day, I, uh, I had something happen that was kind of bad. Bob said, what, what, what do you mean? He said, well, we were at a party, and we were with some friends. 
And, and my wife's mind is, is beginning to slip more now than ever before. And at the party, one of our old friends that we've had for 20, 25 years, she, she couldn't remember his name. And she was so humiliated that she couldn't remember his name. And I remember we, we left the party early and we were in the car and we were driving home and she was crying. And she said, I cannot believe that I could not remember his name. I've known him for so long. And the husband's trying to comfort her and say, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's, it's not a problem at all. And then she turned to him with just tears pouring down her face. And she said, what, what are we going to do when the day comes when I don't know your name? And this is what Russ said to his wife. He said, don't you worry about it. I'll never forget your name. See, that's, that's, a, that's a Christian marriage, right? So here's what's happening in the Old Testament. They're just being flippant about it. They're not taking their marriage vows very seriously. They're getting divorced for the silliest, silliest reasons. And, and God is offended. God is uh, upset with this. See, not only is Christian marriage a testimony to the faithfulness of God and it's supposed to be a symbolic act of how God has been faithful to us, but also God takes our marriage vows very seriously. You ready for this? Because he wants godly offspring. The family is eroding because people who call themselves Christians aren't making Jesus Christ the very centerpiece of their relationship. They're not making Jesus the very centerpiece of their marriage. And I want you to understand something. When two people come together who love God, God is counting on you to make create a godly offspring. He's counting on you to raise them in the ways and teachings of the Lord. And he's trying to get you to make Jesus the very centerpiece. So godly couples, what do they do? They pray together. They read God's word together. They go to church together. They serve God together. Because Christianity is just one generation away from being extinct. What God doesn't want for Christian couples is to act like this is just a one-hour weekend kind of deal. To where they keep praying the same prayer they've always prayed a thousand times before, right before supper. And that's the only time God's even mentioned throughout the entire day. A family that never reads the Bible together. A family that never memorizes scripture. A family that never takes the things of God seriously. That's not what he wants. He wants us to make him the priority of our life, the priority of our marriage, and the priority of our family as well. Well, guess what? The people like that time period weren't doing it any more than they are today. And God was upset. God was offended at all of this. And so God makes the statement. He said, I hate divorce. Now, I want you to get something here, okay? Because a lot of people put words in God's mouth. God didn't say, I hate divorced people. Did everybody get that? Don't be adding to the word of God. He said, I hate divorce. Do you know who else hates divorce? Every person who's ever gotten one. Every person who's ever gone down that pathway and that relationship was severed, they hate it. They hate that it came to that. I, I have lots of friends, lots of friends who have gotten a divorce along the way. And, and for a myriad of reasons, we don't need to get into that today. And, and so I always ask them, I always talk to them, I say, how'd that work out for you? I mean, what was that like getting a divorce? And they always say it was the worst experience they ever had in their entire life. They say things like this to me. They, they say, you know, I thought the divorce would be over after a few months. But what I found was, is the divorce just continued on. It's like a ripple effect. When you throw a rock in a lake, you just see the ripple effect. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. And I said, can you explain to me what you're talking about? So I, over the years, I've compiled a list of what people said they went through when it came to getting a divorce. The first thing that they said was this, that their finances were strained right after they got a divorce. Why were the finances strained? Because now long, no longer are they supporting just one household. Now they're supporting two households. They, they said that there's tension whenever they saw their ex. 
So every time they would come over to get the kids, there would always be tension. There would always be awkwardness. Every time there was a family gathering where everybody got together again, there was an awkwardness. There was a tension with all of that. Then they said this, their friendships were fractured. They had couple friends. Well, now the couple has decided which side they're going to go with. And some couples just walked away altogether. And some of you who have been divorced, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You had to get a whole new structure of friendships, didn't you? They wrote this down. They said the visitation issues and how we handle the holidays. Who's got the kids for Christmas? Who's got the kids for Thanksgiving? How long do you not have them? And what if one of the, the people in the relationship didn't do the things that they said they would do and didn't give the kids when they were supposed to and all the tension and the fighting that goes along with that? They said they got to work through all the issues that their children are going to have. Some of their kids, they felt like, never even got over it. That they never gotten used to the new normal that they now faced. And many of their children, they said they, said they had to get them a counselor to walk through the issues because sometimes the kids would take on the responsibility for their parents' divorce upon themselves as if they did something wrong that caused their mom and dad to get a divorce. They said this, later in life, there's stress when the kids get married. They said, what should have been the happiest day of my child's life ended up not being the happiest day because when I came in the room, everything shifted. Everything was different. And they said, the ripple effect continues on when you have grandchildren. What do, you, what, do you, what do you do with all of that? You think it's just going to be a short-term solution, but it has a long-term impact. So God says, listen, I hate divorce. But he doesn't say, I, I hate divorced people. He hates what divorce does to us. Listen, God understands what it is to have someone break their promises to you. God understands what it is to be abandoned. God understands what it is to be forgotten. God understands what it is to have your heart beaten, broken again and again and again and again. And so God doesn't want you to go through that. God doesn't want you to face that. So he says, I hate divorce. I hate what it does to you. I hate what it does to your family. But I love you. I love you even though you've got a divorce. You're not some second-class citizen in heaven God still has a plan. God still has a purpose for your life. Listen, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. God says, I'm still for you. I still believe in you. I still have a plan and a purpose for your life. So God says in Malachi chapter 2, you're not taking your vows seriously. You're just kind of throwing them away. You're not doing the hard work that's necessary to keep this relationship together. So here's the question. What, what do we do with this? I mean, we can talk about divorce the entire time, or we can do something that's a little more proactive, right? Can't do anything about the past. I, I wish you could. You can't do anything about the past. Ask God to forgive you. Ask the person that you've hurt to forgive. That's all you can do about the past. But you can do something about today. And you can do something about the future. See, I know that there's a lot of single people that are watching at home, and a lot of single people are in this room, and odds makers say you're going to get married at some point in time in your relationship. And so if that's the case, if that's true, I want to help you as much as I can to make sure that you start off on the right foot. In fact, we have a class around here called SYNC. It's our premarital class, and you can sign up for this online. You can use our app. You can use our website. If you're getting very serious in your relationship right now with somebody else, I would encourage you to be a part of the next SYNC class. I, I, I led the class. I teach the class. I would love for you to be a part of the class because this is the deal. You're going to get married at some point in time. The question is, are you going to marry the right person? 
And so today we're going to spend some time talking about who that right person is. And if you're married today, here's what we're going to ask ourselves. Are we the right person? Because you had a dream, right, of, of how you was, your marriage was going to go when you said, I do. She came down looking good, right? She came down, she said, I do, and you said, I do. And you're like, yeah, we're going to show everybody else what it is to be the most successful couple the world's ever seen. You had a dream of the husband you were going to be. You had a dream of the wife that you were going to be. Are you that person? Are you putting forth the effort? Are you giving your best in your married relationship? And so we're going to do a little critique, all right? So if you're married, you're going to kind of critique yourself. You're going to say, all right, am I doing these things that we're going to look at today? This is not an opportunity for you to critique your spouse, all right? Not an opportunity for you to elbow them and say, did you hear what he just said? Because that was really good. You need to do that, right? Now, I don't want any of that. If you're going to elbow somebody, elbow yourself, all right? That'll be very young. Never seen that before in the history of our church. I've seen a lot of this, but not a lot of that, all right? So do some of this today. And if you're single, two questions you got to ask yourself. Am I this kind of person myself? And is the person I'm dating this kind of person as well? If you'll take seriously what I'm about to share with you, God wants to spare you of a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, and a lot of disappointment. So we're going to look at a passage of scripture in Proverbs chapter 31. It gives a list of what we should look for in a potential spouse and the kind of spouse that we should be. Let's look at it. Proverbs 31 verse 10. It says, a wife of noble character who can find. She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. So the proverb starts off realistic enough, right, doesn't it? It says a good woman, a good man, is very hard to find, very difficult to find. It says a wife of noble character is worth more than rubies. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. What, what, what are they talking about here? They're saying this person is selfless. Selfless. You're looking for someone who is selfless. You want to be the person who is selfless. Someone who puts the needs of other people ahead of themselves. So here's the question you got to ask yourself. Here's the question you got to ask about those who you are, are dating, okay? Are they putting the other person's needs? Are you putting the other person's needs ahead of yourself? Are, are you trying to find ways where you can see a need and then you can meet the need? Are you the kind of person who wants to go the extra mile for the person you say you love the most on the face of this earth? There was a song that came out years ago by the Proclaimers, and the chorus went something like this. But I would walk 500 miles, and I would walk 500 more just to be the man who would walk 500 miles to fall down at your door. Da-da-da-da! Da-da-da-da! Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
In Kansas City, the weather can turn on a dime. One of the old things that we used to say when we lived in Kansas City is that if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes, it'll change. Well, there was a snowstorm. All those snowstorms where the weather forecasters weren't aware that there was going to be a snowstorm. And my mom was a cake decorator, and she had cake decorating classes late at night in a mall down in the basement where there weren't any windows. Well, she's at her cake decorating class, and guess what? It began to snow. And I don't mean just a little bit of snow. I mean, it was a blizzard of snow. You couldn't even see through your front yard. It was so bad. And my dad was getting very, very concerned as he was pacing back and forth in the living room looking out the picture window to see what was going on. And he began to notice that two inches had accumulated, then three inches, four inches, five inches, six inches. And he was fearful that his bride wasn't going to be able to drive home safely. So my dad put on a snowsuit. I'll never forget it. I was about 12 years old. And he started to walk to the mall, which was five miles away. Through a blinding snowstorm, he fell down more times than I could count. And he got to where she was at just in time when her class was getting over. Now, she didn't even know it was even snowing outside. And so when she opened the door to go out to the parking lot, she was shocked to see the snow blowing every which direction. And she said that she immediately felt stress because she knew she wasn't equipped to be able to handle driving through this kind of snowstorm. Can you imagine how relieved she was when she walked around the corner and there was my dad standing out by the car it already cleaned off, it already warmed up, ready to take his bride home. I had a front row seat for over 50 years to watch my dad and my mom love each other so much that they served each other and put the needs of the other person ahead of themselves. So you got married. Are you the one who's the servant? Are you putting forth the effort? Listen, some of you are dating right now, and you're dating narcissists. It's all about them. They think the world revolves around them. You need to end that relationship as soon as you possibly can, because that relationship's going to fail. And if you're married today, and you're a narcissist, and you think the whole entire world revolves around you, and everybody should kowtow to whatever you want them to do, and everybody should just serve you, understand this. You are not the center of the universe. You are not God Almighty. And if you were, God Almighty is a servant. Because God Almighty took, took the form of a human being in Jesus, and he came to serve and not be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. So get over yourself and get off the stupid couch and serve somebody else. So there's the first one. If you have somebody in your life that isn't selfless, isn't putting the needs of somebody, let that be a red flag. Let me give you another one. You're with me, aren't you? I saw some elbows flying. That's not what this is about. <laughs> the next one's an encourager. The passage continues. She brings him good. What does that mean? That means she's his biggest fan. He's her biggest fan. Let me, let me read some scriptures to you. Proverbs 19, verse 13. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. Proverbs 21, verse 9. Better to live on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Verse 19, better to live in a, de a desert <laughs> than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. Proverbs 27, verse 15, a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. Restrain hers like restrain the wind or grasping oil with the hand. Don't you ladies love those verses? Aren't those the best verses ever? You're like, thanks a lot, Todd. You couldn't just give us one verse. You had to give us all four. Thanks a lot. I think that those verses could also be used, don't you, for, uh, for the man as well. I mean, better, better to live in a desert, right, ladies, than, than to live with a quarrelsome 
negative, nagging, nothing's ever good enough for you, husband. You know, you, all right, there you go. <laughs> you don't want to be the person who's constantly complaining. And you don't want to date somebody who's always complaining. And you don't want to be with somebody, and you don't want to date somebody, and you don't want to be the person where nothing is ever good enough for them, where they're always critical, where they're always cynical, where the glass is always half empty rather than half full. You don't want to be that person. And if you're dating someone like that or you're acting like someone like that, let that be a red flag to you to say, wait a second, I don't think that's what I want. I want someone who will build me up. Let me let you know a little secret that shouldn't be a little secret to you at all, right? The Bible says that the, words, the, word, the power of words that brings the power of life and of death. My wife can't get me to motivate me to do anything if she nags me. If my wife nags me, I just shut down. I'm like, whatever. It's like, you know, Snoopy, that teacher that would talk. But my wife, she says, you know, I love you. I believe in you. Can you help me with this? Can you do this for me? Can, can you go over here and help if she encourages me and builds me up, I will exceed her expectations every single time. At least in my mind, I exceed her <laughs> expectations every single time. So are you with somebody who's an, who's an encourager? We need to speak words that bring life and not death. Let me give you the third one, hard worker. She selects wool and flax and works with her eager hands. She's like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up when she, while it's still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. A young girl got married. She went off on the honeymoon. She got back from the honeymoon, called her mom in a panic. Mom said, what in the world's going on? Was there something wrong with the honeymoon? And the little girl said, oh, no, mom. The honeymoon was wonderful. It was very romantic. But we got back, and he started using all these four-letter words. And your mom said, well, what do you mean four-letter words? What kind of four-letter words are we talking about? She said, words like cook <laughs> and dust and iron and, 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 and wash. The mom said, I'll pick you up in 10 minutes. <laughs> be, be leery of the person who doesn't want to work hard. Be leery of the person who doesn't want a job. Who wants to milk off the government. You don't want to be that person. You're able body, you, you can work, get, get yourself to work. Get after what needs to get done. And, and you're looking for somebody and you want to be somebody who will do the hard work in their marriage. You, you get somebody who wants to throw in the towel all the time and, and not give their very best, let that be a red flag. You got somebody who threatens divorce, you got trouble, friends. You got somebody who threatens to break up the relationship. That relationship isn't going very far at all. Let that be a red flag on the field that you need to pay attention to. Let me bust through the rest of them real quick. Good with money. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Average Americans, $5,600 in credit card debt. It was over $8,000. But then the government gave all the money out, and everybody's in less debt than they were before. Well, at least we use it for debt, right? That's a good thing. Number one reason for divorce, first five years of marriage, finances. Number two reason for divorce after the first five years of marriage, finances. It never, ever goes away. So you're dating someone and they're spending every dime they've got, be careful. Be careful of the person who wants to make financial decisions in isolation of the other person. Every couple has to get on the same page financially. 
You know what the bummer for many of us is? You want to be a part of this M1 capital campaign, but you can't afford to. Because you're in upside down. There's no way you're going to be able to fill out a commitment card. I get that. And you know what? You'd say, you know what? Next time we're going to do a big initiative like this, I'd like to be prepared for that. We're off in a seminar called Dollars and Cents. This is to help you get on budget, to get on task. And it's super easy to sign up for. All you got to do is use the app. All you got to do is use the website. It's free. You don't have to go in deeper debt for the seminar. Isn't that nice? And you say, you know what? I'm not in debt, but I'd like to get a little stronger in my finances. I'd really like to leverage the things that God has given me to help somebody else along the way. Sign up for the dollars and cents seminar. Let me move on. They're compassionate. She opens her arms to the poor, extends her hands to the needy. Here's a little phrase. The couple who serves together stays together. So the question is this. Are they a servant? Do they serve the needs of other people? Do they look for a way to use their time, their effort, and their energy for the things of God and for the kingdom of God? Do they truly want to leave this world in better shape than the way they found it? And if they don't, let that be a red flag to you. And let me give you the last one. They've got godly wisdom. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Look at that. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. Isn't that the truth? The older you get, the more it fades and wrinkles and sags. Gravity takes over. You understand what I'm talking about right now? But where's true beauty come from? It comes from the inside. A quiet spirit before the Lord their God. You're looking for somebody who loves God with everything they've got. With all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength, who is diving deeply into the things of God, into the word of God. And they want to be a godly man. They want to be a godly woman. And if you're married, that's what you should be shooting for. Because the greatest gift you can give to your spouse is to pursue God with everything you've got. So godly couples, they do read the Bible together. They do pray together. They do seek God together. And it's more than just a one hour on the weekend deal. That's all I got. <laughs> now imagine you had these six things. You, 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 you got somebody who's selfless. Someone who's an encourager. Someone who's a hard worker. Someone who's good with money. Someone who's compassionate. And someone who seeks God with everything they've got. You get those six ingredients together in your marriage, and both of you want these things, and both of you are seeking these things, You'll never, ever utter the word divorce because you will be having the time of your life. So if you're single, don't settle. Don't say, well, we got three out of six. You want all six. You know what I found to be true? And then I'll shut up. Young people today don't understand many times what they're getting themselves into. They don't do the premarital counseling. They go into marriage and Jesus really isn't even a part of their dating relationship. And they don't think that's that big of a deal. And, and then they struggle. And they wonder why. And eventually, I've married enough people to tell you, they get divorced. And then they live with that for the rest of their life. Listen. Be the person God created you to be. If you're single, be choosy. Be smart. And if you're married, you give it your best. You give God your best 
and you give it in your married relationship, and you be that man, you be that woman that you always dreamed you would be. I don't care if your spouse comes along for the ride or not. You do what God has called you to do. You be the person that God has called you to be, and God will bless your life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you have laid it out in Scripture. These are the things we need to look for. Lord, I thank you that you never give up on any of us. That you hate divorce, but you don't hate divorced people. Lord, you love us with an in spite of kind of love. In spite of all the things that we've done wrong, including myself. God, I'm so grateful that you're a God of the second chance and that you want to redeem that which was broken. Lord, from this day forward, help us to be wise. Help us to seek you first with everything that we've got. Help us, Lord, to have the kind of relationships that you desire us to have so that we might be an example to a lost and dying world about your faithfulness. And may we raise our children in your ways and in your teachings so that our kids will understand that there is a kingdom that's worth living for. It's your kingdom. To you be all the glory and the praise forever and ever. In Jesus' name. Amen.